This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 183, What About Bank on Yourself and Bitcoin? Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Do you remember your MySpace password? Did you write down your bank password in a place your grandkids could find it? In fact, according to Daily Wire in January of 2021, Stephen Thomas, who lived in San Francisco, made headlines as he closed in on the possibility of losing 7,000 Bitcoin. That's valued, guys, at $327 million. Now, his wallet, his Bitcoin wallet, was locked by passwords, and he had misplaced the paper he had written his Bitcoin wallet password down on. I am going to go ahead and just go out on a limb and say that that is the most expensive sticky note in the universe. (laughs) And now, Stephen Thomas warned everybody as he was uh, being reported on last month that encryption of Bitcoin has uh, some risk associated. In fact, his words were, and I quote, This whole idea of being your own bank, let me put it this way. Do you make your own shoes? The reason we have banks is that we don't want to deal with all those things that banks do. Now, wait a minute. Let me just pull over for a minute. What Stefan said caught my attention. Have I ever heard of this idea of being my own bank? Hmm. All right. Well, you guys, I got to say, I applaud Stefan for wanting to be his own bank. I just think maybe he was using the wrong tool, that a tool maybe that didn't qualify as real money. So my episode today, I want to walk through with you guys, is does Bitcoin have value? Yes, it is. It, it does have value. It's a store of value. But the next question is, is it too much of a store? <laughs> is it too stored? What about you? Do you think crypto is a true way to safeguard your wealth? Could Bitcoin rise to $100,000 a coin? It certainly could. As as you're listening to this, it could be even north of that, as much as I know the future of anything. Now, guys, I'm going to be fully transparent and just let you know that this is one of those episodes that it took me a long time to release uh, because I wanted to get my thoughts clear about it. This episode will be a doozy, so bring your scuba gear. But this episode also helped clarify my thinking, and if you stay to the end, We're going to have some amazing strategies on how you can use the bank on yourself concept to protect and grow your wealth, regardless of the crypto future that may be coming. So I go back and forth on this crypto idea because I'm super intrigued with blockchain technology and, you know, the encouraging conversations I'm hearing around the future of money. I love the idea that we can take back control of currency, something that governments have for thousands of years had a tight grip on. I also love the efficiency and the promise and privacy that comes with cryptocurrencies. So, of course, I couldn't help but notice that there's a meteoric rise happening as we speak in Bitcoin and many other digital currencies that have been enjoying a rise over the last 12 months or so. Of course, this is also just what happened uh, before it crashed in 2017 and 2018. So, Honestly, as you're listening to this, I have no idea what the value of the price of a Bitcoin will be. 
all of a sudden, uh, causes of celebration can be causes for concern in the moment's notice over a 20-minute period in the cryptocurrency asset class. But what is cryptocurrency? Is it currently set up to take over the world? Or is it really just one big Ponzi scheme? Is it just the latest version of tulip mania? Speculation on worthless tulip bulbs that were going to just end in a bust of worthlessness? Is it just unregulated stock? And is that why crypto is so volatile? Or is crypto possibly the future of money? Is it the ultimate, not your average currency? Should I be adopting this? And should I adopt this crypto craze to buy my pizzas and beer at the next year's Super Bowl? So to find out, I decided to go all the way back to the original decentralized network uh, for knowledge anyway, and that is Wikipedia. Now, if anybody was going to define money in the most Bitcoin-y way, it would be the folks contributing to Wikipedia. That's my personal belief there. So let's read what Wikipedia has to say about money. They say, and I quote, it's kind of a long one, so I'm going to read this. Money is any item or verifiable record that's generally accepted as payment for goods and services and repayment of debts, such as taxes, in a particular country or socioeconomic context. The main functions of money are distinguished as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value, and sometimes a a standard of deferred payment. So let's break that down. That definition has a lot of meat in there. Let's go see what's going on there. The first section of that definition, if you want to go back and listen to it, that's great. But the first section is money is any item or verifiable record. Now, this is where blockchain really comes into vogue. The technology of blockchain certainly shows us and allows for us to have a verifiable record. That's one of the best parts of most cryptocurrencies. There's this wide open source technology and a database of every transaction using crypto. So it's always fully trackable and not uh, easily manipulated. Now, one of my favorite parts of Bitcoin and similar cryptos is that can, it cannot be siphoned away or inflated away by governments looking to hide stealth taxes through money printing. For example, Bitcoin, there can only and forever be 21 million Bitcoin. But of course, that can be divided up into all these tiny uh, tiny divisible Satoshis. But of course, that leads me to this question, who holds the record of these transactions? You know, we, we all hold the record with blockchain technology, but I'm more curious about who holds the patents on the blockchain. So I did a little research. And according to my research, Alibaba was the top company in 2020 with over 1,500 successful blockchain patents followed by Bank of America, and then Tencent and IBM, Walmart, and MasterCard, of all places and people. So as you hear those names, do these companies that run and design the technology of my private money, of your private money, does that really feel like the people's money? Or does it feel more like multinational corporations and mega banks gobbling up technology designed to set us, quote, free from the same institutions, these same mega banks? Let's reread that definition again. Money is a generally accepted form of payment for goods and services and repayment of debts such as taxes in a particular country. So let's move into that section of the definition of money next. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency generally fail the definition at that point. Just look at the use of Bitcoin today. Is Bitcoin 
or other crypto a generally accepted form of payment for goods and services? Definitely not. With Bitcoin being as volatile as it is, would you feel confident trading your Bitcoin for pizza? The first ever real world transaction of Bitcoin is now about 10 years old. And the story goes that somebody, I don't know who, bought two pizzas back in the day for 10,000 Bitcoins. 10,000 Bitcoins. And in, in May of this year, that'll be 11 years ago that that happened. And at that time, Bitcoin cost, uh, 10,000 Bitcoin cost about 41 bucks and two pizzas cost about 25 bucks. At present, 10,000 Bitcoin would be worth, you know, north of $379 million. And that is the most expensive pizza ever. The most expensive pizza ever. I mean, I hope that pizza didn't have anchovies. Now, with that kind of appreciation, guys, maybe I'd just go hungry and hodl my Bitcoin forever. But we're 10 years into the Bitcoin experiment, and the price of Bitcoin has dramatically increased. But has it been used now as a regularly and generally accepted form of payment? Has Bitcoin grown for goods and services and the use of it? Is anybody going to use Bitcoin to buy groceries or pizza anytime soon? I'm guessing not. Not if the price keeps going up and up and up like this or down even. Blockchain financial networks provide an unbreakable, unalterable record of every transaction, but it can be abused by criminals, terrorists, just because they don't require the use of identity uh, for themselves. It's totally anonymous. In fact, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke about her concern of unregulated forms of finance through cryptocurrencies. And in 2018, the U.S. FinCEN, that's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, receives more than 1,500 suspicious activity reports every month involving cryptocurrency. So what am I meaning here? I'm saying if anybody's using crypto to use as a regular form of payment for goods and services, it appears to be those suspicious transactions, the people who are making those use of Bitcoin in a regular way. It's hard to really, even for them, to find trusted and reputable places to use, trade, and spend Bitcoin. You know, there's not like a, an easy Bitcoin ATM network, although that could come, who knows? My guess is that, that uh, typically the ultimate goal of the industry is to make crypto a part of everyone's lives. We're 10 years in and I haven't seen it, not yet. Yes, you can trade your Bitcoin back into dollars and then buy something, but that's not the same promise that Bitcoin had as it, at, it, at its outset. And that's not the definition of money either. You know, if I have to exchange my, my money for other money, I'll just drop the intermediary and go with the real deal. Think of it this way. If you had to exchange your dollars for diamonds every time you needed to buy some groceries, eventually you'd just drop the dollars and just keep diamonds in your pocket. You know, the, the dollars don't mean as much as the diamonds if, if the diamonds are the real money here in this case. Let's now turn to the next section of the definition of money according to Wikipedia. It says money is, quote, generally accepted payment for debts and payment of taxes. So I want to stop here for a minute. Have you guys ever thought about why the U.S. dollar is the medium of exchange in this country? The U.S. United States tax law orders that all of its taxes be paid in the legal currency of the United States, which is currently the U.S. dollar. Now, why would the government want you to pay your taxes in dollars, of all things? I mean, doesn't the government have an infinite supply of U.S. dollars? Isn't that the one thing they don't have a limit 
of how much they can own or hold? Aren't dollars the currency with which the Federal Reserve can simply print without limit to cover the government's expenses? I mean, with this power of printing money, limitless amounts of money, why as a government would you tax your citizens at all if you could just print the money? So there's a theory out there called modern monetary theory, and it basically just says that the government should be able to print whatever it needs to cover expenses and therefore can run any deficit they want. My response to that is, if you can print unlimited amounts of money and deficits don't matter, then why would you need to tax us? Why would you need to have a tax at all? Why charge and drain your citizens of wealth through taxation? And furthermore, why would the government care what currency you paid in those taxes? You know, it seems to me if the government is needing something, it's not dollars. You know, they might need gold or cement or masks or something. You know, why, why not pay taxes to the IRS with things the government needs rather than in dollars, which they've got, of course, an unlimited supply. Now, of course, for those listening, the answer, of course, is control. In the 1960s, the government really began taxing its citizens in order to impact the behavior of its society. Now, we went over this in great detail with Tom Wheelwright, who was a guest on our show on episode 178. So go check that one out. He describes the current tax laws, a series of incentives. And I went into a deep history of taxation in episode 164. So by demanding that taxes be paid in the US dollar, the government is saying, we control you. Now, guys, I'm, I'm not talking like grab your tinfoil hat, mind control, conspiracy stuff, not at all. Uh, they're just saying in a fiscal way, they control and hope they can influence our behavior. Many government people have angelic intentions. They want to build a better society. I'm just saying that if they want to influence me to have a mortgage and buy a house, they're going to do that through the tax law, for example. So if you try to make you as an individual or me as an individual, try to opt out of that whole system of influence or control and I tried to make, let's say, cryptocurrency my main form of payment. And then I have to convert back my money of crypto back to dollars every year to pay my taxes. Then I'm never really sure how much I owe the government because my dollar and my crypto will always be in fluctuation. Now, add to that layer one more layer. Reporting your crypto holdings has been fairly lax so far in the United States. Crypto is still legal to own but it might not always be that way. Already, the company who created the cryptocurrency Ripple is now being sued by the SEC here in the United States, claiming they're selling an unregistered security. Some have argued that it was a huge sign that the US regulators are ready to ramp up oversight of cryptocurrency and coming after other coins like Bitcoin and the rest. Now, this is gonna have dramatic implications on the taxes due on particular cryptocurrencies. You know, who can own it, what it might even cause you to do each year, and what might cause some coins to go out of existence. I can't imagine Ripple or Tether or others are going to be able to survive some of these regulations and these changes. So if you were buying crypto for privacy from others or the government, I have to tell you that benefit is gone since now the IRS is demanding that every person reports all their crypto transactions on their tax return. So be prepared to report all of the ownership of your crypto on your U.S. tax forms uh, and prepare to pay taxes on all the gains that we saw on Bitcoin last year if you sold. So if you were buying cryptocurrency maybe as a hedge against the dollar because you believe 
or maybe you even want to see the United States as the largest governmental and military power in the world come crashing down, please be aware, please be aware that before the dollar crashes and the United States goes out of existence, it will no doubt put up a fight. I mean, guys, there's an old saying out there that if you owe the bank $1,000 and you can't pay it back, you are in trouble. But if you owe the bank $1 trillion and cannot pay it back, the bank is in trouble. <laughs> so what if you, in this case, is the United States government? And the bank, in this case, is everybody the United States government owes money to. So in addition to taxes being paid in dollars, the national debt is in dollars as well. With as much national debt as we have, do you think the owners of that debt, the Federal Reserve, pension funds, federal governments, do you think that the all these credit creditors of the United States would allow the dollar to collapse, making their asset worthless? I don't think so. Now, there's a guy, G. Edward Griffin. I recommend folks read some of his stuff, especially The Creature from Jekyll Island. His quote really sticks with me here. He says, without debt, there is no money. Without debt, there is no money. And perhaps it's also true, without debt, we cannot get rid of money. Now, I have to say, at some point, the US dollar will go away. That is just a sure thing. The question is really when. And I think that before the dollar goes away, all the capital in this country, the real estate, the airplanes, technology, and also, of course, the people capital, it would all have to go away too. And the military might of this country would have to go away. This is the meaning of the words full faith and credit of the United States. That's what that word, that phrase means. It's all of the capital, the people, the stuff, the, the manpower, the intelligence, the credit of the United States is built on that faith. So with that kind of capital, that kind of power, you can have faith that as a nation, we are going to be able to pay our debts back in dollars. That's my personal thought there. So as far as the United States government's concerned, it has been fairly hands-off with regard to cryptocurrency regulations. And as I mentioned before, you know, there's some changes there, but I'd like to also suggest, why do you think it is that the US government has been fairly hands-off? They must not view it much as a risk, at least not now. I suppose the only risk they see is the people who ended up buying the cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin. And even so, stable coins like Ripple and Tether are going to be labeled and classified in lawsuits by governmental bodies. And it's only going to be a matter of time before some of these are going to be outlawed entirely. I mean, they, they did it with this, something as standard as gold in the 1930s. Go back and check that out. In 1933, it was illegal to own gold in the United States. So why not do it with other currencies? And crypto is no exception. So, okay, let me zoom back out again. Come back to me. If you've been multitasking, now's the time to zoom back out. The main functions of money, again, the definition, are distinguished as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value, and sometimes a standard of deferred payment. That's the end of the money definition from Wikipedia. So let's start with that phrase, store of value. So I think, and I think it's just a cool, clever way um, that we've found the word currency to represent money. It's so cool. Currency, it, it's so perfect because money needs to flow and it needs to store. 
we have it's like a lake and a river. The currency is both the storehouse and it's a seamless and liquid source of value that we can draw on. Back to poor Stefan at the beginning of the episode, the guy who lost 300 plus million in Bitcoin because he lost his password. He's not alone. Guys, according to the New York Times, 20% of the world's Bitcoin is lost on hard drives or locked in wallets with lost passwords. 20%. And in February 2021, Germany uh, authorities actually confirmed that they had seized 1,700 Bitcoin worth over $80 million. But one problem, the hacker who owned the Bitcoin was not willing or ready to hand over the password. So it's just gone. That money is gone forever, unless he decides to hand over the, the password. Now, as we all age, let's fast forward. Let's say we own all this Bitcoin or whatever, and we get older and we start to lose our minds. And you know, the age, the 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 wages of age <laughs> have their way with us, and we start to lose our minds and lose our memories. How much more money will be lost as one generation passes on to the next? I mean, do you even remember your own bank password? I don't. You know, I have to keep it written somewhere. What if I lose that? What if I am unable to, to pass on my money to my, uh, my Bitcoin money to my kids or my grandkids? So again, your money has to be stored and it has to flow. In other words, it cannot be so locked up that we can't get it out again when we're ready to use it. That's why they call it currency. That's what makes money worth something both now and in the future. I mean, money is a way to convert something you need in the future to something you can hold today. If you think about it, money is sort of like the promise of the future, the promise of the future. So say, for example, that you need to buy some wheat. You know, you'll be hungry next year too, right? And you see the price of wheat going up. So what can you do? You could say, hey, I'm going to buy all the wheat I need for the next few years. I'm just going to sit on it or put it in my grain silo. Um, because if I wait to buy it, the price is going to be a lot higher. Well, the, the problem with that is, where do you put all this wheat? How do you store it? What if it goes bad? What if it rots? That's the problem. Commodities are bulky, perishable. They're hard to store. So you cannot just buy them years before you actually need them. Now, uh, as a side note, there are things called futures contracts, but let's just save that for a moment. I'll come back to futures contracts in just a moment. So before futures contracts, what would people do to hedge against future price increases on wheat? Let's imagine I'm a, I'm a baker and I think the price of wheat is going to go up in the future. What can I do? Well, I can buy something like gold. There's been a historic relationship between the price of wheat and the price of gold. I know if I, if I know I need some certain commodity in the future, but I don't want to store wheat in my backyard, I can just get some gold and store that instead. Gold is a great way to store value because it, you know, it's a lot of value in a very small area and gold does not rot, doesn't decay. And the baker you know, needs wheat to bake some bread. So he's, he's going to buy today's wheat for today's bread, but then he accepts money, whether gold or coins or whatever, dollar bills, as payment from customers to buy the wheat for tomorrow and the next year and the next year. The baker doesn't accept wheat for payment, even though that would be more useful for him because he knows he has optionality with gold money. He can always buy whatever commodity he needs. For example, if he has money and, and let's say he doesn't need wheat, but he needs sugar, he's got the optionality when he has gold or money, money more particularly. 
even if the baker doesn't need to use the gold himself, he's always sure to find an end user. Who is the end user of gold? You guessed it, the jeweler. The jeweler needs gold. He's always going to need gold. And now in modern times, we could add microprocessors, dentists, space exploration, uh, cell phones, lots of different industries use gold in their end case, their product. So the point is when you buy gold, you're holding somebody else's tool. So for example, the jeweler is gonna need gold and so that you can exchange it later for the right price of what weed is, no matter what prices go to in the future, if you just hold paper alone, let's say dollars in a shoebox, you might not be able to afford the same amount of wheat in the future. That's why gold does better than other commodities during inflationary environments. Now, I have to back up and say there is no end user for Bitcoin. It's not like gold. Nobody needs cryptocurrency to make a necklace or anything for that matter. Bitcoin is merely a math equation. So in my opinion, that makes Bitcoin not a store of value. You really cannot store something when it has the capacity to drop 30% in one day like Bitcoin has recently. Yes, it might grow dramatically, but it could fall just as dramatically. That's not a store of value. That's just speculation. People aren't buying Bitcoin to spend it. They're buying it to hodl, to hold on to forever. Uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies might have a price associated with it. You know, Bitcoin 50 grand or 70 grand, whatever. The current price of Bitcoin can fluctuate daily. It's not really a store of value because why? There is no end user for Bitcoin. So let's just return briefly to the futures contract just for a moment and then we'll wrap up. So the futures contract is paying a small fee today in order to buy something at a guaranteed price in the future. That's what a futures contract is. So if you knew, for example, that wheat prices would be going up in the future, then you could lock in your lower price today by paying a small fee and then receiving that wheat at a lower price in the future when you need it. It's the futures contract. Farmers have used that for generations. Now, futures contracts are really nothing more than insurance contracts. When you get a future contract, you're insuring there's that word, insuring against the cost going up too high in the future. Now, admittedly, humbly speaking, we know quite a bit about insurance contracts. If you've been listening very long to our Not Your Average financial podcast, dividend paying whole life insurance is an insurance contract. And it insures us against a future, an unknown future, maybe a more expensive future. In fact, the way we design these type of policies, the bank on yourself type whole life policies, it helps you and it helps our clients keep up with and beat inflation. Here's how. The cash value grows on a guaranteed basis, knowing for certain that the cash value will be greater next year than it was this year. That's awesome. Much like the futures contract for wheat, it has a predictable future value. The life insurance cash value is predictable. So we know for certain what our minimum guaranteed cash value will be and every year along the way, we'll see that number grow. So the whole life contract has a predictable future value. Also growing is the future death benefit, giving, with, uh, giving a future value to your family no matter what, if you live or if you pass away. Now, if inflation rears its ugly head and we go back to the 1970s or 1980s style inflation, 
whole life insurance dividends will return to double digits as they did in the 1980s. Guys, the party's going to be at my house. If we start to see mortgage rates and interest rates going sky high or even up to normalized levels, uh, we're going to see those insurance contracts and their dividend rates go up as well. So parties at my house. The insurance contract is also a store of value because there's a guaranteed price of value built right into the contract. In this way, the insurance contracts and gold are stores of value, whereas Bitcoin is not. So we're going to talk more about whole life insurance as it relates to cryptocurrency later on in this episode. But the key piece here is what makes something a store of value in the first place? Again, I think it has to have two things. It has to be scarce and there has to be a use. Again, the end user is the person, but it has to have a particular use in the product itself. So back to gold, for example, gold is both scarce and useful. There's only so much gold out there and it would take a lot of work to mine more gold. And it's certainly very useful for other precious metals like silver and platinum and more. Bitcoin, we could say, is scarce. Remember, there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin, but there's no use for Bitcoin. There's no use itself for Bitcoin. It fails the use test. So what are some good strategies? If you've made it this far, you honestly and probably are likely as intrigued as I am with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency writ large and want to see some way to make it succeed and for you to participate in the upside. So what are some good strategies if you think Bitcoin or others have a future, which I believe they do, here are some strategies that we found that, that really can work in your situation. Uh, the question is, how could you profit without being whipsawed by the crypto market? Here's my first strategy. It's a reminder, really. When you use your bank on yourself type policy, you no longer have to choose either or. You don't have to choose between gold or Bitcoin or dollars with bank on yourself type whole life policies, it is both and. If you'd like to hodl or speculate with crypto, you can. When you buy a, a life insurance policy and then use that policy's loan feature against your own cash value, then you can use that quote real money to buy Bitcoin or any other currency you want as some sort of speculative investment, just like you could with real estate or stock or anything else. Uh, and in that case, what you've done is you've just hedged your bets. If Bitcoin or other crypto fail, uh, you've hedged your bets. How so? Because when you borrow from your bank on your self-designed whole life policy, the policy will continue to grow with guaranteed cash accumulation and dividends, regardless of what your Bitcoin or other crypto might do for you. So that way allows you to win either way. Now, if the coin, the Bitcoin or whatever, rises rather than drops, then you win there. You can hodl to your heart's content. You can sell, pay off your policy loan and keep your cash. However, if the coin drops dramatically in value, you still win. While your Bitcoin bet didn't pay off, you still earned growth on the policy as if you had never taken the loan at all. Now, keep in mind that just because you borrowed from the policy doesn't mean that you should never pay it back. I would recommend paying that loan off over a reasonable period of time. You either want to pay it back during your lifetime or it'll be deducted from your death benefit when you pass away. And if the policy lapses with gains, there could be taxes due. So guys, hear me clearly. Do not speculate on crypto or anything else unless you know what you're doing. And that's going to be up to your own investment risk 
tolerance, okay? So if speculation, for example, is not your thing, but you're mainly seeing crypto as a way to securely move to the next worldwide currency, here's my tip. Right now, right now, there are several thousand coins all vying for your attention. And you're very, and even more valuable US dollars. Now to me, that does not make cryptocurrency all that scarce. There's infinite amounts of crypto out there. There's not infinite amounts of even dollars as prolific as they've become lately, especially if nobody needs or uses crypto for anything useful. I mean, landfills are not that scarce and they're not that useful either. So I wouldn't be using a landfill for my currency either. But if deflation happens, this means our, our dollars are getting more and more valuable. Now, in this scenario, the insurance company has the business model of insurance premiums to help support its profitability. This is the way the insurance company stays profitable in good times and bad. Bonds, real estate, et cetera, will be less important than their original business of collecting premiums. The premiums are collected and, and really they're the biggest profit center for insurance companies in the midst of deflation and they'll rely less heavily on all their bonds. Now, in a deflationary environment, hodling cash will be better than hodling Bitcoin. Our, our policy's cash value will become more valuable the longer you keep it in your policy. This actually made me laugh. Since term insurance pays out less than 1% of the time, collecting term premiums is like collecting free money if you're a life insurance company. So encourage all your crypto buddies out there who are you know, googly-eyed toward a crypto to just tell them to go buy term and invest the rest in their crypto, their falling, collapsing crypto, or stock market, or whatever else is falling in the midst of a deflationary environment, since all of their term insurance premiums will be like pure profits to the mutual insurance company you have a policy with. And since that insurance company is mutually owned, that means, in essence, you're the owner of that insanely profitable, boring, in a good way, insurance company. All right, so if we see countries going off one currency, uh, they'll still need to collect taxes and more, uh, I assume. So they're going to issue a new currency and enforce that as the money of the land. Insurance companies pay out claims based on the legal currency at the time of issuing. So before the America dollar, this country in the United States used the Spanish peso. In fact, it wasn't even until the National Banking Act of 1863 during the Civil War that the dollar became official and the only legal form of currency in the United States, 1863. Now, guys, we at Lake Growth Financial Services partner with insurance companies that existed well before 1863. And those insurance companies paid out claims in the current currency, the legally recognized tender of the United States in those days. So if we go to Bitcoin or crypto dollar or crypto peso, you know, your death benefit would be paid in the currency that was legal in this country at that time. That's a something we've actually heard and heard confirmed by presidents of some of the companies we work with. So if you guys are confused about what to do, I mean, crypto this and Bitcoin that, it can be a lot to take in. Here's one idea. And of course, I'm not giving any individual investment advice. I say it at the end of every episode. But as a concept, you could think through some of these strategies that we've mentioned already. And here's a few more. Just buy all of it. You know, if you're confused about whether it's going to be gold or, you know, dollars or, you know, Chinese yuan or, or crypto, just get all of it. You get a whole life policy as your starter point. 
use the cash value to get gold, real estate, cryptocurrencies, anything else. That way you've hedged your bets on both sides. The whole life insurance is a way to hedge against the dollar, even if the dollar collapses, making the cash value in the policy worthless, but the U.S. takes up a new currency, your insurance company is going to pay you in that new legal tender. And if, you're, you, if you've used your policy's loan feature to smartly purchase gold or a winning crypto or some other valuable capital, like you know, real estate or whatever, not just using it for cars and vacations, then you win. You win. Now, on the other hand, if your crypto turns out to be a major Ponzi scheme or something like that, your policy will continue to grow on the full amount that you borrowed. So as we wrap up here, here's a principle for life. One of my principles for life is every coin has three sides, heads, tails, and the edge. Robert Kiyosaki teaches that in his books, three sides, heads, tails, and the edge. Now, Bitcoin has ardent supporters. They have rabid detractors. I am neither. I just want to play the edge. I want to be able to profit either way. The whole life policy is considered the edge here because it can move between any future. It is a futures contract. You have a contract in the future when you have a whole life insurance policy. And by having this policy, you can smartly pivot in an always changing and dynamic world and economy. Is whole life insurance immune from financial disaster? No, of course not. Can you use your whole life policy to participate in the crypto economy? Yes, you definitely can, and many clients have. Just recently, I had a client borrow $20,000 out of his whole life policy to buy some Bitcoin, and since then, it has surged and made him enough money to pay off his policy loan and even start a new policy with that cash. That's awesome. Now, could it have easily gone the other direction? Yes. Yes, it could have. He could have lost it all. But he understood, and he was willing to take that risk. So remember, When you are faced with choosing between two sides of a coin, stand on the edge because that is where the real education and transformation can happen. So with that, I am wrapping up this doozy of an episode. You guys have made it to the end. Stand on the edge. And thank you all for joining me for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your crypto, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.